When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. And by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code hangup at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 18th, 2014. On this week's show, ESPN's Jeremy Schaff will be here to talk about his recent report on the terrible conditions faced by migrant workers in Qatar in the run-up to the 2022 World Cup. We'll ask him how he got the story and whether FIFA will do anything about what appears to be a human rights disaster. We'll also be joined by Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski to discuss the latest NHL playoff developments, including a shocking desecration of the vaunted post-series handshake line between the Bruins and the Canadiens. Finally, we'll look at California Chrome's Preakness victory, if he'll be the first tourist to win the Triple Crown since 1978, and whether the whole thing might be derailed by an equine nasal strip. I'm joined by the sniffly Stefan Fatsis in Washington, D.C., I need a breathe right. The author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, spokesman for various nasal accoutrements. 
And the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, we'll be joined shortly by Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pasca, with Mike Pasca. Uh, but first, let's start with FIFA's human rights disaster. Qatar is the smallest country ever to host the World Cup, or will be if the 2022 event goes off as planned. Jeremy Schapp of ESPN had a report last week on the show E60 that calls into question whether uh, FIFA should pull the plug. Jeremy has uh, joined us. Uh, thanks for being here, Jeremy. My pleasure, guys. So you say in your report that when Qatar made its bid, it you know promised to be the most dazzling, fanciest World Cup ever, $200 billion cost, amazing stadiums, fancy hotels. Um, but this is all a dream that needs to be built by someone. And Qatar does not have the workers to do this. So they import the workers. They import them from South Asia. There are more than a million migrant workers there. And you uh, went to the country. You uh, risked arrest. You went to labor camps to speak to the workers to see what conditions they're living in. Um, tell us what you found. Well, they're living in squalor. Um, they live in this industrial area, for the most part, about 20 miles from the skyscrapers of Doha, which is this futuristic dream come true. Uh, they live lives of misery. Um, You've got to understand that they're, they're in filthy labor camps. Um, they have virtually no rights. Uh, the conditions in these camps are deplorable. And beyond that, they're, they're treated um, in other ways like subhumans. You know, for the most part, they have only one day off a week, typically Friday. Uh, that happens to be family day in Qatar. And on family day, single men are not allowed access to most of the public parks, public spaces, the waterfront promenade, all those kinds of things in Doha. So effectively, they are, they're banned from mixing with Westerners, with Qatari citizens. Um, it's almost like this strange, bizarre universe you enter there, and the citizens are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the migrant workers. But if you're around Doha, and you're in the nice restaurants, and you're, you're in the nice hotels, you, you don't really see them. The Qatari government last week uh, issued a, a, a report that it had commissioned by an outside international law firm that called for reforms to some of the, the operating practices in Qatar, the kafala system chief among them, which is the one that effectively binds workers to their employers. Um, and you talk about indentured servitude, Jeremy, I mean, and, and the piece that you guys did was, was fantastic in sort of portraying how these men are trapped in Qatar. They can't get out. Um, they had to pay brokers to get the jobs in the first place. Their passports are confiscated when they get there. Um, their wages are often reduced. Pay is, is often not um, pay often doesn't come through, as we read in the New York Times this morning on a separate story about working conditions for migrant workers in Abu Dhabi on the construction right. of New York University's campus there. Um, when you take all these things together, you know, it, it's an indictment of FIFA, of course, and all the other international bodies that want, on the one hand, the glitz and oil money that the countries in, 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 in the Emirates want. On the other hand, there's a complicity here, and, and underlying your story is the complicity of, in this case, FIFA. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we sat in this specially constructed building in Doha, uh, which is a museum now to the World Cup bid effort, and they showed us the bid presentation 
that won over so many of the members of FIFA in addition to other things, uh, which Money. people are still trying to sort out. Um, and months. it was this spectacular high-tech video, unlike anything I've ever seen, you know, like maybe it was 270 degrees surrounding you, and it, you know, it had all of these high-tech computer graphics about what the World Cup would look like in Qatar, everything they would build, a new rail system, and they make some interesting points. You know, if you want to talk about a green World Cup, it makes more sense to have it in one city than in 10 or 12 cities. So everybody's right there, and they're not flying around on planes and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, this is a country that in the summertime is 130 degrees sometimes in the daytime, and typically about 110, 115. You can't go outside. And yet, they're going to build all of this. They're going to build air-conditioned stadiums. They're talking about air conditioning, essentially, the whole region of the country in which the games are going to take place. And there is not one word about who's going to do this work. Not one word. And to the best of my knowledge, nobody ever asked. Nobody from FIFA ever asked anybody, you know, how does this get done? How much do you pay these people? What conditions do they live in? And, you know, it, it, it speaks to a lot of things about FIFA. Uh, but, but in particular, it's uh, lack of accountability, its processes, which have been so flawed for so long, um, and, you know, it, it's, its lack of due process, if that's the right term, when it makes these kinds of decisions about where its events are going to go. So the Qatari government's um, numbers are that around 1,000 migrant workers have died in 2012 and 2013. And given that these are government figures, official figures, you would have to question whether that even portrays the scope of the problem. Um, yeah. Do you have a sense, Jeremy, I've seen an estimate of 4,000 are going to die. I mean, you obviously can't know for certain um, you know, what the projection will be. Um, but how do those numbers strike you? And do you think that they really portray um, the scope of the issue here? We're talking about hundreds from just India and Nepal in the last couple of years. And India and Nepal are two of the countries that send the most workers to Qatar, but it's also Pakistan. Uh, it's also Sri Lanka. It's also Bangladesh. And the best figures come from India and Nepal, but there are many more. And we know as well that the Qatari government uh, you know, has said that a lot of these are suicides, and so you can't really blame us. But, of course, why are healthy young men committing suicide en masse uh, when they go to this country uh, ostensibly to send remittances home to their families. They're from the poorest places on earth. You know, it's a bad situation when the government is saying that it's okay because they're only suicides. Yeah, they're, they're, they're only suicides. They're not actually dying on, on the job from falls. They're not actually dying from overwork or from poor nutrition, the stress of the job. <laughs> living conditions? Living conditions. Um, I mean, it's appalling. And, of course, there are places all over the world where laborers work in awful, deplorable conditions. But this is one of the richest countries in the world. Arguably, the richest country in the world, the per capita income is $105,000 per annum. Qataris who don't have any kind of job get, I think the number is $60,000 from the government just for being Qatari citizens. Uh, uh, there are fewer than 300,000 of them, and there is a sea of migrant workers. Those are the government's numbers. Uh, you can only imagine 
how bad the real situation is. And, and we spoke to Sharon Burrow at length, who represents workers' interests around the world for the International Trade Union Confederation. She estimated 4,000 by 2022. It could be more. It could be slightly less, but if they are really going to build all the things they say they're going to build for this World Cup, uh, that sounds like a reasonable number to me. Last November, Sepp Blatter, the head of FIFA, declared there is not one single doubt that the World Cup 2022 will be organized in Qatar. Last month, some new bribery allegations of FIFA voters uh, for in, the, uh, in the, the selection of Qatar emerged, and Blatter was asked whether Qatar could lose the tournament, and he answered that he was not a prophet. And last week, Blatter said to a Swiss TV station that, of course, it was a mistake to give Qatar the World Cup. He was talking, we think, about the weather conditions, but I right. suspect that in the grand tradition of doublespeak and denial that FIFA and other international sports organizations live in, this could be part of a run-up to FIFA gradually backing away from holding this event there. I mean, you've got the money, you've got the weather, you've got the appalling health conditions that you've helped expose along with The Guardian, particularly last year in its yeah. er, er, initial reports and Amnesty International. Do you see the potential for a walk back or do you feel that these giant international agencies and the Qatari government are so locked in that we're going to proceed regardless of the consequences? Here, here's the thing. I, I think the best answer to that question is nobody has any idea. I mean, FIFA is an organization that's run from the top. It has historically shown very little responsiveness uh, to international calls for change. Um, you know, we've still got Sepp Blatter running the organization after everything that's gone on over the last decade plus in terms of corruption, bad decisions. Uh, there is no true accountability. So for them to admit an error, that's not something, uh, although Blatter said it was a mistake to give it to Qatar, to, to, to actually reverse the decision, uh, that's something different. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe somebody gets into Sepp Blatter's ear and says, hey, we've got plenty of time here. It's eight years. They gave this World Cup to Qatar long before it needed to be awarded uh, the 2022 games. They gave it to them in 2010. Certainly it could change. It could change overnight. Um, right, it could change overnight, and, and FIFA could just say, well, this was the correct decision all along. Of course yeah. we intended to take it away. Yeah, well, you know, you just don't know what they're going to do. Right. Because, again, this is, you know, this supranational organization uh, that controls the most popular sport in the world, that controls the most popular event in the world, not just sports event, event of any kind. Uh, and and there is no there is no democracy in FIFA, uh, I, I really think it, it, would be, it would be unusual for it to respond to this kind of external pressure, but maybe it will. Well, kudos to you and to ESPN as well for doing this report. ESPN is broadcasting uh, the World Cup from Brazil coming up in a few weeks, and this obviously is not you know, putting FIFA and the uh, institution of the World Cup in the best light. So, you know, obviously, it's, you know, great journalism to, to do this, even with those possible consequences. My question is about Brazil. Um, and the spending there has been outrageous. There have been protests oh, yeah. in that country. 
um, as well, um, and questions about um, you know how things have have gone with with labor there. I think not to this extent, but what responsibility do you think ESPN has with showing the games and showing everything um, great about the World Cup and how um, you know what a wonderful spectacle it is? What kind of responsibility is there to also shine a light, you know, during the tournament before and after on, um, you know, labor, on cost, things of that nature? Oh, I, I think there's a tremendous responsibility. I think it's our obligation. Um, I think we're doing that. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know all of the stories that have been commissioned, who's handling all of them. I know that Wright Thompson, who is a, a brilliant writer who works for us, uh, has been writing stories about the issues in Brazil. Um, certainly we covered the conflagrations during the Confederations Cup closely. And our objective in our coverage of this event is, is not just to show the games, but to show the country and to show the context in which the tournament is taking place. And we are, I think, fully prepared to cover whatever happens during the tournament in terms of protests, uh, in terms of the host's inability to deliver on the promises that it made. I am confident that if you watch our coverage of the Cup, it will not be in any way sugar-coated. Uh, let me jump in here, Jeremy, and also commend the piece that you did on Qatar for humanizing this tragedy. Uh, your crew went to Nepal. You tracked down the families of some of these dead workers. The images of the funeral pyres in Nepal are, and, and the village where one of the workers lived are just they're just tr- they're just so tragic and moving and powerful and put this all into context. And I think the important thing here is that we put these 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 international events that cost billions of dollars and we do need to not forget the human element here and and I think your piece did that thank you these are these are people you know that and no one would want someone they loved treated this way no one would want uh their children to be forced to work in an environment like this uh to to suffer the way that these guys suffer, and they do it because they are desperate. They have no choice. They come from the poorest places on the planet. They're going to the richest place on the planet. It would mean nothing to the Qataris to make their lives bearable, but it hasn't happened, and it won't happen unless people talk about it. Um, so, you know, we felt, you know, I mean, we felt an obligation to do this story. All right, Jeremy, thank you. We'll be um, looking out for re-airings. It's been showing on various ESPN networks quite often. It'll be available online, I think, in the next couple weeks, right? That's right. Jeremy Schapp is a reporter for ESPN. His story on Qatar appeared on the news magazine show E60. Our sponsor this week is Squarespace. You can use it to very easily build a website, and you can start a free trial with no credit card required. I was looking through various Squarespace sites and I found Scott Kelby sports photography. This guy is a very good sports photographer. I just, I must say, Scott Kelby. I want to give that guy a shout out. And uh, Squarespace is very good at portraying large format photography. The photos really pop, football action shots, looks really beautiful. Um, Very simple, easy to design, create, drag and drop content. They also have 24-7 Support and it only costs eight dollars a month uh, to start out, and a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Um, as I mentioned, you can get a trial with no credit card required and start building your website 
instantly. Uh, when you do decide to sign up, please use our offer code, which is HANGUP. You can get 10% off your first purchase and also show your support for the Hang Up and Listen podcast. So go to squarespace.com and use the offer code HANGUP. We thank Squarespace for their support of Hang Up and Listen. We are now joined by Mike Pesca of The Gist with Mike Pesca featuring Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? Hi. So it was Hang Up and Listen without Mike Pesca. And that's the differentiation of this show. Are we doing our intro chatter now? Because we didn't really do any intro chatter. Let's do some intro chatter. It's just that, you know, it's like, um, what's his name? Anson Doran said about his soccer players, they need time while they stretch to chit-chat a little. Otherwise, they'll be tight during the game. I feel the same way. Yeah. I call that blah-blah time with with my (laughs) soccer team. I give the girls some blah-blah time. All right. Well, we need to waste a little bit more time because I don't feel quite warmed up yet. Oh, man. Mike, how's it going? What's I'm going good. on, man. Give us a sick, give us a gist, squads, dude. Give us a gist <laughs> update. Just just is gisting. It's gisting towards greatness. Are you in a gist mode? Are you in a gist groove? Are do you? Well, have you know, daily... I'm always in just. I'm always in just mode. Sometimes I think that I'm away from news that I can't be away from, and so I have to, you know, mainstream it. I've begun listening to certain slow talking uh, podcasts at double speed, not the normal one and a half times speed to fit mm-hmm. more in. Here's a little hint: Face the Nation, not. Of the Sunday shows, probably my least favorite, yet the only one that I could put on double speed because Schieffer talks that slow, so therefore it's become part of my routine. Can I just give you two pieces, two words, little advice? More bestiality. (laughs) People demand it. So coming off of that uh, bestiality remark, I would now like to uh, bring in Greg Wyshynski of uh, Yahoo's hockey blog, Puck Daddy. Greg, I always like to bring you in with some lighthearted banter. How do you feel about following bestiality, though? I think that's a first for our for our partnership. But not really a first for our blog. I mean, it, it runs rampant in the NHL. It only garners about a one or two game suspension from the league, though, so it's really not a big deal. <laughs> I saw Brendan Shanahan's explanatory video on the penalties for bestiality, and I thought it was very direct. And I really video, understood the, the issues. the video shows, the horse, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> An incident I, occurred. Could I just point out that what what did you what was your transition, Josh? Uh, moving away from bestiality. That's actually what happened in the last round of the playoffs, as all the animal teams, the Bruins, the Ducks, and the Penguins, were eliminated. So yes, the NHL too is moving away. From I think I think a duck is a much lower level of penalty from the league <laughs> than, oh my than God. a Bruin. That's so anti-avian of you. And a more much more complicated example of bestiality, actually. <laughs> the more I think about it. Mm-hmm. All right, you're t- uh, great to have you, Greg. <laughs> Greg Wyshynski is the editor of Puck Daddy. Let me just button that part of the conversation by only saying the punchline of a joke. That's one of my favorites. Should I put it on your bill? I'm not that kind of duck. All right, that's it. You don't need to get into more than that. All right, so there was a desecration of a handshake line. We've talked a lot about desecration already in this conversation, but Milan Lucic of uh, the Bruins, he, uh, if if we read his lips, what did he say? I'm going to uh, effing kill you next year. He said that to uh, his friends from Montreal, I think he Greg. Said, I'm going to fucking yeah. kill you next Which year. Which is odd because that's exactly what most people wrote in my high school yearbook. <laughs> I, I, I find it to be kind of ironic that it comes full circle now. <laughs> I feel like we talk about this every year, but um, you actually wrote about this in 2013 about how the NHL is so self congratulatory about the handshake line and how it's just a little ridiculous. <laughs> Literally self congratulatory. <laughs> so self congratulatory. Um, so. Share your thoughts with us about the handshake line, about whether um, what uh, Lucic did was inappropriate or whether it just exposes the 
the handshake for the uh, farce that it is. Well, the only thing, the only people that should really like the handshake line are statists, because honestly, what you're basically doing is you're taking the losing team in their lowest moment of emotional pain and anguish and forcing them to acknowledge their their opponents who have just vanquished them and taken money out of their pockets, as the great Stan Makita once said, and uh, and forcing them into this this farcical moment of of forced sportsmanship. I like genuine things in hockey. I like when people actually do genuine things and there's genuine gestures, like that that moment where all the players stood around after the Ducks King series to salute Team Mussolini. That was really nice. That was a genuine moment. The handshake line is is forced. It's awkward, and uh, the fact that Milan Lucic uh, took this moment to uh, express his gratitude towards many of his opponents and, and invite them back next year for T and Grumpets, I thought was was a nice use of the handshake line. And the bottom line, you know, Mike Milbury said, "Hey, you should have just not participated." But then, what 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 do we have? Like, as if the media isn't going to completely demonize Milan Lucic that way either if he skips the line. Well, Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce are known for not shaking hands, and that becomes a thing. So I think there's, you know, no scenario in which uh, skipping a handshake wouldn't uh, become a story, no matter what the sport is. Well, exactly. And and for me, it's like I look around the sports world and I see examples of post-game camaraderie that I love. I love beer. I love beers after a rugby match. I love beers after a curling match. I love the tradition you see in, in both uh, European football and also in a lot of, of, of races where uh, team, the players or athletes are, are changing jerseys. You know, you get my jersey, I get your jersey, that whole thing. The handshake line is so completely overwrought and, and, and phony and artificial. And the thing I hate most about it is that it, you always hear the same thing from these announcers and, the, and a lot of fans that love to put up the traditions of hockey as being something greater than everything else in life. Oh, the greatest tradition in all of hockey, the post-game handshake line, where nobody in it wants to participate. It's just a sham. All right, I'm going to be the counterpoint here. I'm going to A, point out that you called... I thought it was a playoff discussion. It's really a handshake discussion. But no, go ahead. In 2012, you called a brawl during a handshake line between North Dakota and Minnesota in an NCAA hockey game, unconscionable <laughs> and unsportsmanlike. And I want to push back a little. I think the handshake line actually, for all of its phoniness, there is some gen- there is some sincerity there for most of the players. I think most of the players do accept that in our sport, at the end of this tense, brutal series, we are going to, for a moment, remember that we are playing a sport and that we don't really hate each other, that we really all are represented by the same union and make shitloads of money and play a sport that we love and have been playing it since we were small children. And it's okay because someone has to win and someone has to lose. I like the handshake client, even if it forces some people to suppress their true feelings and exposes others who are unable to suppress their true feelings for a few moments. And maybe I say that as the parent of an athlete who has to shake hands after every game. Often the girls make a little pyramid and the other team walks underneath the, like a 21 gun. And they throw garbage at the, at the girls as they walk through. Yeah. That's cool. Well, there you go. I think the handshake live line does have a place in the sports world. It's around the area where everyone gets a participation ribbon for playing 
That's when you should have handshake lines. Why? Is when you're when you're in youth sports. <laughs> First of all, the fight was unconscionable because it happened at a point where nobody expects a fight. And any time that kind of thing happens. Nobody expects somebody to say, I'm going to fucking kill you next year on the handshake line either. Why is that okay? As Milan Lucci said, he's not, he's not the first guy to pop off a handshake line. It actually happened in a, in a Kings uh, Coyote series uh, during the Kings run to the cup where uh, Dustin Brown annihilated somebody with a check. And then the Coyotes were, were saying all sorts of things to the Kings in the handshake line. So it does happen like this. But, but again, like, I understand that the, the idea of the symbol, symbolic sportsmanship aspect of the handshake line, which again runs counter to everything we like about hockey. On NBC, there's a thing called Rivalry Night. They, they, re, they rearrange the divisions in hockey to accentuate the hatred between teams. You spend seven games building it. It's the reason you watch. By the seventh game, it has reached its boiling over point. It's a beautiful thing. So then, moments after all of this bile is left spilled on the ice, staining it black, we're going to have them all get together and just say, good game, good game, good game, in this perfunctory artificial nonsense line. I, I dislike it uh, slightly less than the shootout, but I still dislike it. You convinced me. Anyway, let's go to Heinrich <laughs> Let's go to Henrik Lundqvist. This guy's playing in the playoffs as great as he is in the regular season. I think he's one of the best goalies. I think it's the reason why the uh, Rangers won three in a row. And I'm told that when a goalie gets hot in one series, they sometimes cool down. You think that's going to happen with Lundqvist? I know, and I think he's, he's locked in pretty good. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of uh, unknown ter- uncharted waters for him a little bit because, you know, he's been to the conference final once before, and uh, he's always been seen as the goalie that, has outstanding earlier rounds and kind of falters as he gets later in the playoffs. There's just something different about him. And then there's also something different about the team in front of him. And I think the words that we're looking for are goal support. I mean, for them to come out and put up the goals they put out up in game one uh, for Lundqvist, he's got to be breathing massive sighs of relief because it's no longer a team where he goes into the game knowing he has to win one nothing or 2-1. This is now a team because some of their big offensive guns are finally firing that's going to be able to give him some goal support. And I, I do think at some point their mental exhaustion does become a factor for a guy like Lundqvist back in those John Tortorella Rangers teams where he knows that the margin of error is usually a goal uh, when your offense doesn't do anything in the playoffs. It's not the same Rangers team. It's not the same case. And I have a feeling that Lundqvist is going to be a better goalie for it. We should probably point out that the Rangers beat the Montreal Canadiens 7-2 to in the Eastern Conference. Is it still called the Eastern Conference? Finals. Yes, uh, the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals. And the other one, Chicago is playing Los Angeles. We should probably point that out. Good thing to point out. Can you tell Those us will about- be the teams shaking hands at the end of this round. <laughs> tell, Greg, tell us about uh, P.K. Subban of uh, the Canadiens. He um, is high on your uh, playoff MVP list. Is that the Conn Smythe? It's the Conn Smythe, in fact, yeah. And P.K.'s have been an amazing story. Not only compartmentalizing all of the off-ice stuff, I mean, the, the racist tweets that were coming from, from Bruins fans to the point where the Bruins had to apologize to their fan base for the second time in, in three years, by the way, for that sort of stuff ending up on Twitter. But also, you know, he got squirted by a water bottle from Sean Thornton from the Bruins bench. And that was a moment where I really felt that TK reached a new level of maturity, but also a new level of being a monster heel, as they would say in professional wrestling. Because he goes into the post-game press conference, he acknowledges the fact that if he had done the same thing, he would have been absolutely destroyed by his critics in the media. But then says, look, it's not a story. Let's not talk about it. Fully knowing that since he received three questions out of the first four about it, 
it was going to be a huge story. So I thought PK, instead of continuing to pour gasoline on the fire and backing off a little bit, showed class, but also showed an acknowledgement that he knew that the media was going to carry the water for him. But on the ice, he's been amazing. I mean, he's got one of the best shots in hockey. He's been a a factor in almost every game. He's reached a new level of stardom, uh, not only with his playoffs and offensively, but defensively, and also being one of the best agitators in this game as well. Without question, I think the, the Montreal Canadiens MVP right now, right along with Carey Price. We should say that uh, P.K. Subban is of Caribbean heritage. That's why, that's not why, but that explains the racist uh, tweet remark that uh, Greg just made. $5,000 seems to be the going rate for <laughs> squirting water on an opponent. Uh, Henrik, Henrik Lundqvist also squirted some water on, uh, on Sidney Crosby during the last playoff series. Now that the Bruins and the Flyers are out and the Rangers and the Canadians are still in, Bruins and the Flyers were two of the thuggier teams in the NHL this season. Were they not? Should we see, should we expect, particularly with the Blackhawks and the Kings in there as well, are we going to see a little more graceful, flowing hockey with fewer shenanigans? Oh, there will always be shenanigans because players have shenanigan-like players on every team. It's just that they're not necessarily (laughs) of the same ilk as, say, Sean Thornton from the Boston Bruins whose, you know, Neandrosilic suggery, I think, is going to be something that's on the outs. In fact, their fourth line that in years past had been such an asset to the Bruins was called out by the media in Boston as being relatively ineffective in their series loss in the previous round uh, to Montreal. But you do have players in each team that especially know how to throw the body around to crash the net. You saw one with the New York Rangers' Chris Kreider, quote-unquote, lose his edge and cannonball into Carey Price, the goalie from Montreal, uh, injuring him a bit in, in Game 1 and, and putting his status for Game 2 in question. So you're always going to see players play with an edge. But you're right. I mean, the teams that typically are the big intimidation teams, specifically the Bruins, are on the outs. And one reason why, I think, is because that act didn't fly with Montreal. They had the best of Boston in the regular season. They simply were not going to be intimidated by their physicality. They stood up to them, and at the end of the day, they advance, and, and big, tough Milan Lucic is acting with all boo-boo-faced sore babyism through the handshake line because his uh, particular brand of whimsy didn't win. We have uh, four teams left. Three of them were in the original six because of realignment. That's the most we can have in the final four of those original six teams. Now, the Rangers were never really good when there were only six teams in the league. But <laughs> is that important? Is that, you know, a cool thing beyond nostalgia reasons? It's important only because when you're dealing with the original six, you are dealing with, with major media markets um, that, that you know, will watch their teams in droves, especially if they've not been good for a while. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of reasons for the NHL's surge in popularity since the 2005 lockout, but I, one of the primary ones is the fact that the Boston Bruins won a cup and were a, a sensation. The Chicago Blackhawks won two cups and cultivated an amazing a demographically friendly fan base in Chicago where you ha- it's just massive amounts of people of all ages now watching that team. The Rangers getting good again, challenging, Detroit being Detroit. And then you go beyond the original six to, to teams like the Flyers and the Penguins, for example, that have been strong. All of these teams end up in the Winter Classic and the outdoor games. Now all of these teams are challenging for the Cup. Uh, it's it, it's all been very beneficial. I mean, if you think about it, there's been like two dud uh, finals for the NHL, and they both happened relatively early after the 2005 lockout, which was Anaheim and Ottawa and Edmonton and Carolina. And ever since then, we've had original six teams and massive media markets in the U.S. 
in every uh, in every cup final since. So they've been very, very fortunate. Do you think that it is um, a question of being fortunate, or is it is there something structural about the league about playing in these big media markets? Like we're not seeing Columbus; they're in the playoffs, but we're not seeing them in the finals. We're not seeing Winnipeg. We're not seeing Nashville um, make it that far. Um, it strikes me as maybe not being a coincidence if it never happens. <laughs> Well, no, I, I, th- I think I think there. I mean, there's obviously something to be said for teams that can spend and the, and the cap going up, and you're going to see teams with money being able to retain their talent and acquire new talent when the salary cap rises. That's for sure. But you still have teams like Phoenix and the Tampa Bay Lightning that have made the conference finals in recent years, and you know, one bounce one way or another, they could have been playing for the cup as well. So it's it's it has been fortunate for the for the NHL for these big markets to win out and enter the the cup final. Um, and even in years where a Canadian team does sneak in, like Vancouver did, uh, the Boston media market alone in that series carried the ratings to, to huge numbers. Um, it, it does help when that becomes the single most contentious final I can remember in my lifetime, to the point where they burnt the city down after Game 7. Uh, but that also helps when you have a, a market like Boston looking for their team to win their first cup in quite a while. You know, if you Google Original 12, you get the six teams that were added in 1967, so, listen, hockey guy, what are those six teams? <laughs> they were added in 1967? Yes. Oh, Jesus. Now you're putting me on the spot. It's like the Flyers and the Penguins and the, a bunch of other teams. The ah, Blues. The Blues, that's three. The Kings. The Kings. Sure. And then two teams that no longer are with us, the Minnesota the North Golden Stars Seals. and the California Seals. Golden Golden Seals, right. Yeah. When did the Buffalo Sabres come on? They seem to have always been there. Apparently later. Apparently you're later. Asking, you're asking a boy born in 77 about the uh, the original 12. And really, as you know, hockey for me began the moment the three-time Stanley Cup champion New Jersey Devils uh, relocated from Colorado and gave the Garden State its greatest champion. All right. Well, we'll leave you in that state of reverie, yeah. Greg. Yeah. Uh, thank you, as always, for being with us. And I'm going to fucking kill you next year. <laughs> Handshake, handshake, handshake. Good game, good, good game, game. Good game, good game, good game. game. Greg Wyshynski is the editor of the Yahoo Sports hockey blog, Puck Daddy. And you can also listen to his podcast, Merrick versus Wyshynski. You can get that on iTunes and on sportsnet.ca. Right, our sponsor this week, number two, is Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. And a new addition to the Audible catalog that's uh, very exciting is a collection of David Foster Wallace's tennis essays, five of them, um, which are all outstanding. There's the famed Roger Federer one that appeared in uh, the New York Times Sports Magazine um, a few years before David Foster Wallace's death. Um, there's the one derivative sport in Tornado Alley about uh, his career as a, a junior tennis player, uh, the, the writer's own career. And then uh, maybe my favorite is the one about Michael Joyce, who was a player kind of in the mid-middle rungs of professional tennis and just about what that life is like for somebody who is not Roger Federer. All amazing essays, um, much imitated, not really surpassed by anyone else who's written about tennis. Um, I'd encourage everybody to to listen to them on Audible. Um, And thanks to the great offer we have for Hang Up listeners, if you're in the U.S. and you've never tried Audible before – you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. You can get that audiobook in the 30-day trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup.
Kentucky Derby Victor California Chrome went into the 139th running of the Preakness Stakes as the favorite. He left Pimlico in the winner's circle yet again, holding off right on Curlin by one and a half lengths. The three-year-old has now won six straight races, the most recent two of which have been the first two jewels in the Triple Crown. It's been 36 years since Affirmed won the Triple Crown, but there have been 13 horses since 1978 that won the Derby and the Preakness, including I'll Have Another Two Years Ago and Big Brown in 2008. All 13 of those were huge horsey losers at the Belmont. I'll Have Another didn't even make it to the starting gate. Nope. Huge loser. Uh, We have another three weeks to wait and see if California Chrome can redeem all of horsemen kind. In the meantime, we'll talk about this in a minute. Everyone's talking about the giant Band-Aid-looking thing on California Chrome's nose. But first, Mike, I wanted to ask you, um, Joe Drape of the New York Times said that California Chrome sounds as if it belongs to a Triple Crown champion, holds its own alongside Sir Barton and War Admiral, Citation and Secretariat. I don't know if I agree. California Chrome? Yeah. Please. To me, it sounds, it seems like it's going to lose out to Mozilla Firefox. <laughs> um. And by the way, I'll have another. It was just laughing because, like, the joke's on you. I didn't race, but I got all my carrots that day. So <laughs> screw all y'all. And I'm heading to stud. <laughs> I feel like California Chrome, it's more like going to lose out to rust proofing and, you know, other oh, I other see. things for, for an extra $1,000 with the warranty. Rustoleum red. Some Earl Scheib inspired horse names. Yeah. I get what you're saying. So let's. Um, Although maybe the horse fan knows this, I think it's important to recap why it's just so impossible to win a triple crown. The, these races were established, what, 140 years ago? And back then, as from what I understand, like boxing, the equine athlete used to do their thing once every couple weeks. So it wasn't that unusual. And there wasn't, I mean, just in terms of genetics, there wasn't that much time to get these super fast bloodlines established, which really emphasize speed, but you can't emphasize everything. So it de-emphasize durability. So now we have this race, the, the Preakness, uh, two weeks after the Derby, the Belmont, three weeks after the Preakness. And horses never have to race in that close a cluster. You know, this to have three races within, you know, less than two months is crazy for the modern horse. And then you add into it the fact that the Belmont's the longest dirt racetrack in North America. And then you add into it, and this is the real killer, that a lot of horses just skip the Preakness and go right to the Belmont. So California Chrome's closest rivals in the Derby will probably show up in the Belmont a bit more rested. And then there'll be a whole bunch of other horses that haven't even raced in any of those races and I think it's beyond, well, that's the reason, but anyone could break this string of 13 having not done it. I think it's become a near impossibility. The odds won't agree with me, but and usually I defer to the odds because people who put their money usually know more than I do, but not in triple crown races. I think that the public is unwise, and it's an extreme long shot that California Chrome will win. Arguing against that is the what we've said of all the 13 other horses. Hey, look, they've beaten better horses before. Yes, but the other thing is, in California Chrome's case, the field is acknowledged to be really, really weak this year. But still, you have those horses who haven't even raced at all who are going to go up against them in the Belmont. Nolan Ryan argues that they've just been babying these horses <laughs> in the minor leagues. Hasn't thrown enough That's pitches. Right. That's why they're all losing in the Belmont. So this sport is met, is really screwed up. Um, as Mike said, there's this tension between the traditions, the sport, and you certainly don't want to throw that away because the Triple Crown is really all that horse racing has. It's the only reason that we're talking about it or that anybody talks about horse racing outside of, you know, uh, Louisville. 
Um, but at the same time, it's just doesn't really match with the reality of, you know, horses and the sport today. And you kind of see this with the breathing strip situation. The um, California Chrome has this uh, strip on its nose that supposedly, who knows, it might be the equine equivalent of pseudoscience that supposedly helps it breathe. But there are stewards in uh, New York and the Belmont who might not allow the horse to race with this strip. And, you know, it's it's just always this kind of conflict between um, the traditions of the sport and, you know, wanting it to be popular, wanting there to be a triple crown winner, just because that's the only thing that'll really be good for, for PR for the sport. Horse racing has become like other things that have been marginalized on a daily basis in sports, but retain this allure. It's like the Olympics, you know, oh my God, gymnastics. I care so much. Every four years, we care about horse racing once a year because it has this, because of the history, we care about horse racing once a year, precisely because of the history, because we've heard of secretariat and affirmed and war emblem and whatever famous horses uh, that are out there from Probably the War past. Admiral more than War Emblem. Oh, yeah, War Admiral. Yeah, okay. um, and the one that sold 50 million copies, um, you know, Seabiscuit. So yeah. there is this cultural desire to care about horse racing, but the reality of the business is what is abysmal, is that there are really not that enough new customers to sustain it, um, that it is remains incredibly expensive to be a part of it, to breed and to train and to raise horses and to run these tracks. So what happens at a place like Himlico is that you know they splash a new coat of red paint and they tone down the frat boy atmosphere in the infield to try to gussy it up and make it look a little more traditional and a lot of people come out to watch because it is an event and there's a place in sports for that of course and you know I'm not so sure that we care that a lot of people go to horse races every day, but we do care that there is a Kentucky Derby and that there is a Triple Crown because it is appealing in the way these vestigial events remain appealing. We want to be part of that history, and we see that in the way the Triple Crown is covered. There's some great writing. I mean, Tim Layden's piece on SportsIllustrated.com after the Preakness was a lovely piece of sports writing. Um, so there is something that's very attractive about horse racing, part nostalgia, part that it lends itself to narrative and storytelling. There are great characters like the trainer of California Chrome, the 77-year-old guy. So there is something that we love about horse racing and want to see continue at least once a year. Well, I would I would argue that the um, the business of horse racing actually isn't that bad a business. I mean, yeah, the n- number of fans are down, but because it's now easier to bet anywhere, it's uh, and also because there's a lot of government subsidies. But for a lot of reasons, it's not a terrible business actually. And one of the reasons is also that people love to get into it, even if they lose money. It's a lot of fun. I mean, horse owners and even the people who bet on the tracks. But yeah, most of what you said about the nostalgia is right. But I kind of also think so what I mean. You know, on the one hand, we decry how huge the big sports, especially the NFL, have become, and it's ridiculous. On the other hand, when other sports kind of maintain a modest place, and this is true, I mean, I've said this during our discussion with women's sports, but it's also true with the less popular sports, it seems pathetic uh, as compared to the NFL and maybe as compared to what it used to be, but it's actually, you know, a fine sport. It holds a fine place, almost even a rational place in the consciousness. I mean, we've gone so crazy with all the other 
other sports that these littler sports, some of which, like boxing and horse racing, used to be bigger sports, now are niches. But that's where sports should be, you know? They shouldn't be, we shouldn't be obsessed with them and wearing clothes based on them and paying that much attention to them except for a few times I'd a like year, to see you in silks, though, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, when I say that horse racing is messed up, it's not because of the size. I think the size and the popularity is reasonable. I'm talking about things like, you know, the expose about jockey shocking horses, which apparently is a very prevalent practice um, about, you know, horses dying in kind of terrible conditions. Drugs. And claiming races all around the country about, you know, the U.S. is really the only country in the world that allows drugs like Lasix and, you know, they were supposedly going to outlaw it in the Breeders' Cup last year. And then, you know, the trainers, the big trainers were like, we're just going to boycott if you don't allow us to use these horse drugs. And they're like, OK, well, you can go ahead and use them then. Um, and then, you know, you have the owner of California Chrome saying, um, you know, the horse loves what he does. That's why he's America's horse. In my opinion, this horse, what he's doing for two guys that work their butts off every day just to put beans and bacon on the table. This horse has given everybody else out there the incentive to say, you know what? We can do it, too. There's nobody in America who's saying that. Nobody putting beans and bacon on the table. Well, that sounds delicious. But nobody's saying, like, California Chrome's really embodying the can-do spirit that's going to allow me to, you know, go to my construction job and not feel really sad about my life. I mean, there's this vision of you know, horses still being like a sea biscuit, but it's the sports in a really sad kind of state. And every year, like 13 times out of the last 38, when there's a horse going in to the Belmont, it's like, this is the thing that gives hope. And the owners just lap it up and the press laps it up. And it's just really the only happy, shiny thing that this sport has going The other thing that gets lapped up is the notion that a triple crown winner somehow will revive and purify this business. Right. If that happens, we're going to have to actually, you know, that fiction is going to be exposed. Exposed. Terribly. I mean, look, a lot of people are going to watch. The Kentucky Derby got a 10.1 rating, which is almost what the first round of the NFL draft got. Um, And there's some good points that were put together in a Wall Street Journal uh, roundtable featuring their two horse racing writers that that get into some of some of these some of these issues. You know, this is not going to suddenly make people flock to Belmont, which let's be honest, is a dump. The Preakness is... The, it is not a dump. Pimlico's kind of a... It's lovely. <laughs> Belmont's awesome. Wait, what? It's not a dump. Wait, Mike. Stefan said, let's be honest. Oh, okay. It's not a dump. <laughs> it's not a dump? You can take a train out. It's beautiful. It's in Queens. It's very grassy. Yeah, Where, but- if you go any... During the Belmont, it's... Extremely crowded, but you could bring your own beer. Or at least she used to be able to. I think you still can. <laughs> and any other time, you might want to check like, that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this huge expanse where no one goes, and there's a lot of grass. It's a, it's a hidden jewel. All right, I mean, it's New jewel. York City. It's the New York City version of bucolic, but it's great. Pimlico's kind of run down. You yeah, know, Pimlico needs, needs a little yeah. bit of a needs a little bit of a boost. My point is that I don't think a triple crown winner is going to suddenly send hundreds of thousands of people onto the Long Island Railroad. What do you take to get out there? The A train? No, there's a special, the special. Uh, LIRR uh, specific Belmont train. The Belmont Express. I don't yes. think the Belmont Express is going to have New Yorkers on the top of the the train car clamoring to get out there. <laughs> um, so so the, this fiction will extra extra. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> News boys.
So the incentives here. I would just say that the reason that the Kentucky Derby almost got as good a rating as the NFL draft is, you know, just America was fixated on opportunity and if opportunity would fall. And then when opportunity was scratched and the Cleveland Browns took them in the first round, it was just amazing. So the incentives here are um, that it's actually better for the owner of the horse to just pull out, pull, pull California Chrome out and t- from economic reasons, yes. because if the horse loses, then, you know, the stud fees go down and that's where all the money is. There's some speculation that that's what happened with I'll Have Another, that there was some sort of phantom injury that, you know, allowed it to preserve its value. You know, this is in the same category of convenient fictions. If the horse doesn't run, I wonder if that's what will happen with the nasal strip. They'll be like, oh, no, we can't use the nasal strip. The steward said we can't use it. I guess the horse won't run. And then we'll just have to put him out to stud and make millions and millions and millions of dollars. I'll have another one sold for $10 million to a Japanese breeder. Are you also a Dumbo feather truther, Josh? I just want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, I blame. Okay, so let's go back to the idea of this horse is inspirational. And oh, they say that with every horse. And beans the and bacon. La- yeah, beans and bacon, Smarty Jones, any horse that See, was bought good. for less than $10,000 we're supposed to identify with because we were all bought for less than $10,000. <laughs> it is ridiculous. And it actually brings to mind the fact that this is ridiculous when said about human athletes, how much, you know, they inspire us because they overcame iron poor blood. I do blame, I do blame Laura Hildenbrand because her prose is so great and you almost believed it with Seabiscuit, but it wasn't true then also, and it's never true. And the other big thing about why the Triple Crown won't unite us, you know, just like Miguel Cabrera's Triple Crown didn't really do a lot for baseball. People like Trout more. The Triple Crown won't, won't unite us because of what you just said, because of stud fees. They're not, maybe if this horse wins the Triple Crown, they'll let him do some sort of one victory appearance at a breeder stake, but it becomes insane to let the horse run. And so as soon as you do the thing that establishes a superstar, you take the superstar off the market because of stud fees. So I would like to see if there is a triple crown race, Visa pays a triple crown or corporate sponsors pays, pay a triple crown winner to win that race. I would like to see, you know, interested parties coming together to make it remunerative for the horse to keep racing and to establish, uh, establish horse racing, you know, establish a, a superstar within the world of horse racing. Although, Josh, everything you said about how cruel horse racing can be, maybe that's an unethical stance on my part. <laughs> Let's end it there, Mike, with your uh, lack of ethics, your horrifying lack of ethics. Oh, come on. Belmont's a nice place. We could do with that. (laughs) Oh, we've got breaking news here at uh, Hang Up and Listen headquarters. We got a story from The Times. The lead says, California Chrome fans can breathe easy. New York regulators are expected to allow Chrome, the Derby and Preakness winner, to wear his nasal strip in the Belmont stakes. So all of that talk on the podcast. You can just burn this podcast Basically, no, we didn't really talk that much about the nasal I, strip. I think I actually just said that they might use the nasal strip as an excuse to not have California Again, Chrome run. Well, sports commentator <laughs> making bad predictions. Yeah. So it looks like that is not going to be the thing that keeps California Chrome from the Belmont. It can breathe easily. It can breathe easy. Fans can breathe easy. Everyone can breathe easy. We'll all California be wearing Chrome, these strips. Most important, can breathe easy. Everyone can breathe easy. All right, let's uh, do afterballs. I think California Golden Seals. We've had kind of an animal theme for this week's <laughs> podcast. I'm looking at the logo, Stefan. It looks like kind of a cross between a like really poorly uh, illustrated geometry problem 
and like a Shasta. It's got but like it's, a lemon-lime kind of flavor to it. It's Oakland A's color. Yeah. That's the deal. It is. It's California. It's golden. They were the Oakland Seals, and they became the California Golden Seals. That's a terrifying seal, though, with a hockey stick in its wing. You don't want to run into that seal (laughs) in a dark bay or whatever the seal equivalent of a dark alley is. Pesca, what is your golden seal? There's nothing about that shape. It's a triangle with a rounded (laughs) edge and a a dot for an eye and a little nose slash and a little mouth slash. There is just nothing about that that says seal unless... I mean, it's just not seal-like. I, I think know. I think maybe that's why the team went uh, went kaput. You know what it reminds me the shape of? Like you ever see those things that you stick in the airline seat in front of you so it can't recline? It's the California anti-reclining airline seat. They became the Cleveland Barons, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After that, it all makes sense now. And uh, then it grew a gigantic beard. Oh no, that's the wrong Baron. <laughs> Baron, that's Baron uh, Davis. Baron Davis. <laughs> uh, Mike, what is your golden seal, please? So the draft just ended, and looming over the whole draft was what was the what were the Cleveland Browns going to do with their quarterback, their receiver, and so we know the quarterback was Manziel. But Nate Burleson, a receiver, has broken his arm in uh, minicamp. Actually, it's a rebreak of an arm, a rebreak of an injury that occurred in 2013, and this injury was ably investigated, really expertly investigated at the time by David Roth, writing in SB Nation. The headline says it all: slice by slice, getting to the truth about the Nate Burleson pizza incident. Yes, he broke his arm while stopping short and trying to rescue some pizzas he had in the front seat. Here we go. Monday, and I have uh, augmented this excellent David Roth report. Monday, September 23rd, 8.30 p.m., Burleson and some acquaintances descend on Happy's Pizza and Pub to watch the Raiders play the Broncos in Monday Night Football. It's kind of one of my new hangouts, he tells 101.5.1 Sports. After closing the place down, Burleson leaves, taking two pizzas with him. Not a pizza, as was initially reported. He looks down, looks up, and overreacts to a car in front of him. He hits the brakes on his 2009 GMC Yukon, and it starts to fishtail. The car swerves, hits a median. Burleson had a seatbelt on, but the airbag deploys, but he did break an arm. So what I have done is I have looked up the safety factors of the 2009 GMC Yukon, and in fact, fishtailing is not unexpected in this model. They rate cars according to what's called the uh, SSF The SSF stands for the Static Stability Factor. The 2009 GMC Yukon, oh, what is the Static Stability Factor? It is, of course, SSF equals T over 2H, where T is track width, and H is the height of the center of of gravity of the vehicle. And the 2009 GMC Yukon is rated three stars by Motor Trend, but it's really an unstable car. It has... It, it's pretty high. It has a 1.12 static stability factor. To put it in context, this is almost as bad as a minivan. So was Nate Burleson driving a time bomb? Add the pizza to it. I'm going to say yes. Burleson, it is later revealed uh, by the reporting of Roth and others, Burleson may have been looking down at the time. Why was he looking down? Changing music on a personal music device. Now, I have a... Uh, I've researched the implications of this, and I come to the National Traffic Safety Board's Deborah Herzman has looked into the issue of distracted driving. And she feels that talking and texting while driving, regardless of a hands-free system, and Burleson later claimed that that was the case, regardless of a hands-free system, needs to be outlawed. And there's been a lot of pushback on that, but I just think maybe 
Detroit Lions fans or Cleveland Browns fans need to look at if he was indeed distracted. Well, how do we gauge, how do we judge how distracted a person like Nate Burleson would be? You know, there are some researchers who say we need to train ourselves to multitask while we drive so we get better at it. Huh. Unlike most civilians, Nate Burleson has a statistic associated with him that gauges how well he could he could concentrate on two tasks at once. Those two tasks are holding onto a football while absorbing a hit from a defensive player. And Nate Burleson from 2009 through 2011 was 10th in the league in dropped balls. He dropped 21 passes during that time. Now, sure, he had a lot of passes thrown his way, but his drop weight his drop rate was a little high, and I think we saw that bared out, or I th- and I think that was borne out with the pizza incident, what is henceforth known as the pizza incident. Adding to all this is how Dave Roth expertly documents that the pizza, that he, Happy's Pizza, is far from his home. He almost went out of his way to go to Happy's Pizza. This leads to more time on the road, a greater propensity to get into an accident. Furthermore, there is some intimation that he was endorsed by Happy's Pizza. So in fact, there was a monetary influence. There was a monetary motivation for him to go to this out-of-the-way pizza place. Maybe if he went to the closer pizza place, he wouldn't even need to have shuffled his playlist on his personal audio device. So I'm saying when you add it all up, it is a morass of pizza, distracted driving, and stability factors. You know, I still think there's a lot more to be looked into, perhaps Roth and I, if we start a Kickstarter, can really bust this one wide open. And who's the, the unwitting victim in all of this? The pizza. The pizza, was the pizza not, went uneaten. The pizza was not buckled in, first of all. And Johnny Manziel. Manziel would not be a brown today if the pizza were secured. Stefan, what is your golden seal? If you're Canadian or were a hockey fan in the 1970s, then surely you recognize that voice. It is Roger Doucette, the French-Canadian tenor synonymous with the Forum in Montreal and the Canadian National Anthem, and anthem singing before hockey games in general. In Canada, Doucette was known as Monsieur Au Canada. In the United States, adolescent hockey fans, like me, would belt out Au Canada in honor of the five foot five Doucette who wore a helmet of silver hair and rubbers over his shoes so he wouldn't slip on the ice. Roger Doucette was to O Canada what Robert Merrill was to the Star Spangled Banner in New York and Kate Smith was to God Bless America in Philly, but way more influential. The rendition of O Canada we just heard was sung before a Montreal Canadiens Boston Bruins game in May 1979 during the lead up to a referendum on sovereignty for Quebec. Here's the English part near the end of the bilingual version of the song. Doucette had asked his friend, the Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, if he could change the words in the penultimate line of the song from we stand on guard, we stand on guard for thee, to we stand on guard for rights and liberty, a nod to French separatism. You can hear the Montreal fans applauding right after that line. Doucette's rights and liberty line is now still sung in some versions of the song today. Even more impressive than changing the lyrics to the Canadian anthem might be the story of how Doucette changed the words to the Soviet anthem. 
1976, Doucette was tapped to sing the anthems for the six teams playing in the Canada Cup tournament. He got the lyrics for Sweden, Czechoslovakia, and Finland. The other two teams were the United States and Canada. But he was told that there were no words to the Soviet anthem, at least not anymore. The lyrics were no longer sung because they included references to Stalin and World War II. According to Canadian hockey writer Joe Pelletier, Doucette was told to hum along, but he wanted to sing. So he found the old words, took them to a Russian professor at the University of Montreal, and told him to do something. The Canadians, the team, showed the lyrics to the Soviet coach Viktor Tikhonov before the first game. Tikhonov approved them, and Doucette sang them in Russian, of course. The game was broadcast live in the Soviet Union. The Canadian foreign officer in charge of international sports recalled in 2000 that after Doucette's brash move, he waited for a rocket from Moscow, but nothing happened. Doucette sang the lyrics again the next day, and a year later, the Soviet parliament adopted the lyrics pretty much the way Doucette had sung them. That's from Doucette's album Songs of Glory, on which he sings more than 15 national anthems in their original tongues. Let me just say Roger Doucette's Greek is not great, but you got to give him credit for trying. Songs of Glory is available on iTunes for $9.99. Roger Doucette died in 1981, but he remains available on YouTube. Josh, what's your golden seal? I wrote about wingspans last week. I was very excited about the NBA draft combine where they poke, prod, and measure all of the college prospects who uh, want to be taken in the NBA draft. And they look at the uh, height without shoes, look at the height with shoes. That adds a couple inches. Look at the size of the hands. But my favorite by far is the wingspan. Um, Our friend David Epstein, formerly of Sports Illustrated, uh, author of The Sports Gene, he writes about this in his book about how disproportionate the limbs of NBA players are compared to the rest of us. Um, According to one study that I found, average adult man has an arm span 2.1 inches longer than his height. Based on the data from Draft Express, the average NBA prospect has arms 4.4 inches longer than he is tall. So that's more than double uh, the wingspan uh, differential of the average man. Um, Epstein also found in a Sports Illustrated piece from a couple years ago, that wingspan is a better predictor than height um, of shot blocking prowess. You've got uh, Dwight Howard, DeAndre Jordan, Taj Gibson, all great shot blockers, um, all huge wingspans. Um, Blake Griffin, not as good of a wingspan, as tall as DeAndre Jordan. Top three shot blockers in the NBA playoffs, Dwight Howard, seven foot four and a half wingspan. DeAndre, DeAndre Jordan, seven foot six inch wingspan. Taj Gibson, seven foot four inch wingspan. Huge wingspans for these guys, all who are well under uh, seven feet tall. So a couple wingspan facts that I was not able to fit into the story. Um, A couple people wanted me to note that Kevin Willis uh, was notorious for having one of the smaller wingspans ever in NBA history for a seven-footer, known for having arms like a T-Rex, seven-foot tall. Um, I haven't seen an official stat. I saw somewhere that his wingspan was only six-foot ten, supposedly. But the numbers are, uh, you know, borne out. If you look at uh, basketball reference, I looked for um, seasons in which a guy seven feet or taller had less than uh, 0.5 blocks per game while playing more than 25 minutes per night. There are 15 such seasons. Kevin Willis had four of those 
Short arms. The dude cannot block shots. Kevin Duckworth, known for being uh, very squat and not being able to get off the ground. He also had four such seasons. James Edwards, Bill Cartwright, Primoz, Brezic, and Eddie Curry, all uh, on the few blocks for being seven feet or taller list. Um, another omission in my piece, well, I didn't talk about standing reach. So wingspan is kind of a proxy for um, how high you can reach. Because if your height is you know seven feet, but you have short arms, you can't reach as high. So wingspan is a proxy. Standing reach is the actual measurement, which is taken at the combine as well. Standing reach has become more of a um, buzzword in recent years. I looked on Nexus, only 10 mentions of standing reach in the NBA prior to 2002. There have been more than 200 since then. The first reference I could find was to Manute Bull, who supposedly had a standing reach of 10 foot three, which means you can dunk the ball without having to jump, which is always helpful. Uh, Jerry Krause in 1993 on Tony Kukoc, uh, noted that he's long-armed and has a nine-foot standing reach. Uh, Virginia Tech coach in 1997 said about a player, one thing that often gets overlooked is standing reach. Clint McPherson is 84 inches from fingertip to fingertip. That's more important than two extra inches of neck. You don't head the ball into the basket in this game. A little, little dig at soccer. I enjoyed that. Um, then there's the question of the, just the word length. That's what is the word that's used when you talk about a standing reach, a big wingspan, you say that a guy has a lot of length. So Ben Zimmer, who has been cited many times on the Hangout podcast, he uh, did a search and found that um, in 1992 in the Los Angeles Daily News, a player was described as having quickness, length, and jumping ability. In 1993, a player was described as having length and great anticipation. In 1993, another player was described as having length and athletic ability. All three citations of length were by uh, the coach Mike Dunleavy talking about Eldon Campbell, Dikembe Mutombo, and Ben Baker. So Mike Dunleavy is the czar of length. He seems like the guy who popularized that term. He's currently um, in talks with the Knicks. Who knows if that's serious? But it would be good to get the inventor of length back into the league. But the most important thing, the most notable thing about Mike Dunleavy and length is that Mike Dunleavy Jr., his son in Sports Illustrated in 2012, was described as having a lot of skills, he handles, he passes, he has length. So imagine the pride that a father must feel. Not only does your son make the NBA, but he's described in the leading sports magazine as having length, which is a great thing to have in basketball, but it's also the term you invented. The son you brought into the word described using the term that you brought into the world. It's the cycle of life. It is. It's a beautiful thing. All right, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. Find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Fuolo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.